Matthew 17. We're going to begin in verse 23 and go into chapter 18, verse 14. When we stopped last time, Jesus had just told his disciples again that he would be betrayed, taken, and killed, but would then rise on the third day. And, Scripture says, they were sorrowful. But then, after a brief interchange with temple tax gatherers, the disciples got into one of their disputes about what their status would be in Christ's kingdom. But before we get there, let's take a look at this interesting vignette, this short little short story about the temple tax and how Jesus handled it. Verse 24 of Matthew 17 says, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? I'm going to stop right there. It's interesting that they went to Peter and not straight to Jesus. This happens several times in Scripture. And uh, it's interesting that they seem to be reluctant to go straight to Christ except, of course, the Pharisees, who saw themselves as higher than anybody. But they go to Peter and ask him, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Peter answered, he said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. The temple tax was not a tax by Rome. Rather, it was a tax of Jews, by Jews, and for the Jewish temple. It was a normal tax of a half shekel, or about two days' wages, required of every Jewish man each year, a regular collection of money for the maintenance, upkeep, and operations of the temple. It was not collected by Roman-hired trader tax collectors. Faithful Jewish men both collected it, and faithful Jewish men voluntarily paid this obligation, while Others sought to escape the responsibility. Does that sound familiar? This tax was collected at the annual feast of Passover in Jerusalem, but a month earlier in the other areas of Israel, like Galilee and down in the Negev and elsewhere. So they were able to cover pretty much the whole country within about a month. After A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, the Romans hijacked this tax by diverting it to the temple of Jupiter in Rome. So it ceased from being an act of patriotism and instead became a symbol of the subjection to Rome, to a pagan power. The fact that the story is recorded is one of the scriptural indicators that Matthew's gospel must be dated before A.D. 70. Another interesting point, at least I find it interesting, is that when Rome 
destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And as Jesus will predict, not one stone was left upon another. I mean, because there was gold between the stones, the soldiers literally took it stone by stone and put it in fire to melt the gold and they collected the gold. But they also took many of the stones. These are the stones of the Holy Temple. They took those stones that were so carefully cut and fit together. They took them to Rome and built the Colosseum with them. So if you've ever visited Rome or you've seen pictures of the Colosseum and you see how it's kind of half, half destroyed, um, you're looking at the stones of Solomon's temple there. And the reason that it's kind of half gone is because in later years, the Roman Catholics took many of those stones to build St. Peter's. Kind of an interesting back and forth with just the story of those stones. I digress. Jesus asked, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. But then Jesus explained that he is not liable to pay this tax because the father doesn't require it of his son. I got to see who's here. Here we go. Because the father doesn't require it of his son. Hmm. It was a rule with the Jews that all are bound to give the half shekel. Priests, Levites, all Israelite men, and the strangers or proselytes and servants that have been made free but not women, servants, slaves, or children. So Peter wasn't obligated to pay this tax. I'm sorry, Jesus wasn't obligated to pay this tax under the principle he had just discussed with Peter, that as a son, not a servant, he didn't have to pay the temple tax. Yet Jesus also recognized the importance of avoiding needless controversy. And therefore, he was willing to pay the tax in order to not offend those who questioned Peter. Also, because Jesus' ministry was to experience being human to the full, he wouldn't partake of any privilege. Interesting, Jesus' use of the word that's translated as offense, is the word scandalon, where we get the word scandal. So what he's saying is that lest we create a scandal, let's go ahead and pay the tax. He uses that, and that indicates that he's telling Peter that they don't want to risk being a bad example to others. You see, in every way, Jesus was intent on absolute obedience to the true law of Moses, as opposed to the thing that the Pharisees made up. In fact, Yahweh specifically commanded this tax of the people through Moses, back in Exodus, back in the second book of the Bible. In chapter 30 of Exodus, we read, and if you have your cross-reference sheet, I have it there. Chapter 30, verses 11 to 16, says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them. Hmm. When you number them, 
This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras, Scripture tells us. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And verse 16, the Lord says, And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So God himself commanded this tax many years before, 1,500 years earlier. So Jesus tells Peter to go fishing, but not with a net. Instead, he's to use a hook to catch just one fish. Now, we don't catch it here as we read the text, but for a professional fisherman who always went out with a net in order to bring in as many fish as possible, this was kind of embarrassing. But Jesus told him to use a hook to catch one fish. He said, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. Jesus knew and trusted in the miraculous provision of God. Who ever heard of someone catching a fish and taking a coin out of its mouth? But Jesus used God's provision to pay his taxes. Also, the tax was a half-shekel tax, but there were no coins of that amount or smaller. So it was common practice for two people to pay their tax together. Thus, Jesus told Peter, And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. So the Son of God pays the tax levied for God's house. But, and I think this is so cool, he does exercise his royal prerogative in doing this because he takes the shekel out of the royal treasury, the limitless abundance of creation. As being man, he pays. But first, as God, he causes the single fish to bring him the shekel in its mouth. So Jesus, who didn't need to pay the tax, paid it anyway and for Peter as well. But there's also an interesting historical, I guess, feature here. While paying the half shekel was not actually required, anyone who consistently didn't pay, anyone that the Jewish tax gatherers noticed, you know, they didn't pay. And by the way, they would they would go after them. They would, they would really harp on them. But if somebody consistently refused to pay the tax, he wasn't breaking the law. But if he didn't pay, the Jewish leaders were told by the tax gatherers and somehow he was marked by them. They watched him and... Uh, they may have made some things in life difficult for him. That's just in histories, Josephus and Eusebius. Now, as we go into chapter 18, we see a completely different set of circumstances. Circumstances that are actually, in some ways, embarrassing for us to read in Scripture. Chapter 18, verse 1, 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now these are the disciples, the men who would be Christ's apostles. These are the, are the men who would be so transformed at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and then go out and totally change the world for Christ. These are the men that include Peter who would deny the Lord and yet on Pentecost he would give this incredible evangelical sermon. But here are these got into this petty argument. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, that means with that simple faith, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's heavy. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little one like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Obviously, that's where that picture came from at the beginning. And guy being hung down. But they said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Really, guys? This is so petty and so shameful. But, of course, our perspective is vastly different than theirs was at the time. We're looking back over 2,000 years. We're looking back over what we know they would become and what they would do. But at that time, there were just these petty guys who wanted to know how important they were. And yet they brought up the issue of who's the greatest several times in different ways, despite Jesus' frequent teachings on humility. And we need to remember at this time, Jesus' disciples still thought that he was about to set up his kingdom on earth. So they wanted to know what their roles would be. Prime Minister, Finance Officer, Charge of the Army. All those different roles. You know, um, Minister of Defense. <laughs> Minister of the Air Force. <laughs> Whatever. They just wanted to know what the roles were going to be. Just as they seemed oblivious to Jesus frequently telling them of his own coming selfless humiliation, disgrace, and dishonor, being completely abased and killed for the sake of mankind. His disciples were selfishly focused instead on their own advancement. By the way, despite all the statues and the pictures that we see of Jesus on the cross, there's one fact that I have never seen displayed in any art, and that is the fact that people who were crucified, men and women who were crucified, were totally naked. They were absolutely, they didn't have any little loincloth or any little strap around their chest. They were totally naked. Talk about humiliation. Talk about dishonor, being totally abased. Because that's what happened to Jesus on Good Friday. 
but they were focused on their own advancement. So they wanted to know who would hold the highest position in the earthly administration that they thought Jesus would soon establish. Their question, of course, was short, just one verse. But Jesus' response, his answer, was both rebuking and clarifying the huge difference between what his kingdom would be and what the worldly, earthly kingdoms were like. In fact, the difference is so great, it's difficult to use the same word for them both. Here's Jesus' response. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. you got to wonder what these guys thought when he said that. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He answered their question. The obvious answer to their question would be for Jesus to tell them, uh, I will be the greatest in my kingdom. Or if we look at the ridiculous, incorrect Roman Catholic theology, it would be Peter. But Jesus didn't do that. He called for a small child to come to him. Calvary pastor David Guzik, great guy, still teaching, marvelous. He puts it this way, referring to Jesus' statement that unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he says. This was probably a great disappointment to the disciples. They knew that in their day, children were regarded more as property than individuals. It was understood that they were to be seen and not heard. Jesus said, we have to take this kind of humble place to enter the kingdom, much less be the greatest in the kingdom. He says it well. He said that we have to take this kind of humble place in order to enter the kingdom. So in saying that, we must be converted to be like little children. The disciples must have been turned upside down. It simply isn't in our fallen nature or theirs to take the low place and to humble ourselves. So, Jesus held up a child as an ideal, not of innocence or purity or faith, but as an ideal of humility and unconcerned for social values. Wow. What an object lesson. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. I want to see if I can find something if I... I don't know if I copied it or not. Excuse me a second. Yeah, I'm going to read it to you. Of course, Jesus is emphasizing humility both in himself and in his followers. His own examples of himself, his humility found in John 13, Philippians 2, they are strong ones for us to follow. As is his parable in Luke 14. I'm going to read this parable. You, it should be familiar to you, but I find it an extremely powerful story that Jesus tells. Luke 14, verses 7 to 11. So he told a parable to those who were invited. He was, he was in 
the house of one of the leading high Pharisees. And he was watching as people walked in and took a seat. So he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you in him come and say to you, uh, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, and this is really a strong lesson for us. When you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I'll add to that parable, it also shows that if he doesn't, if the, the leader of the, of the feast, if he doesn't come and say, no, no, come on, get up higher, there's no embarrassment. You took the low place and you can enjoy the feast from there. And there's nobody looking at you, <laughs> embarrassing and so forth. But then Jesus continues in his extended answer to the disciples' question. He says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. I put two pictures at the beginning. I'm going to put them back up now just very briefly. If I can find it. Yep, yeah, there we go. Those two pictures, the one on the left, of course, is a picture of somebody who's had been tied to a millstone and thrown into the sea and he was on his way down and dying. On the right hand, though, is a picture of a typical millstone. That sucker is big. That's heavy. And that bar going through it, the far end is what's attached to a donkey that would go walking around in circle after circle, grinding the grain, milling the grain. And that's what that was. That's what that was about. You see, in these verses, Jesus actually equates himself with little children in the sense of genuine humility, even to the point of saying, whoever receives one little one like this in my name receives me. As we've said before, when we do things sincerely in Jesus' name, we are saying, according to Jesus' nature, according to his very person, according to all that he is and does and will do, and that we belong to him. So when we say in Jesus' name, it means all of that and more. So when we receive anyone including little children in Jesus' name, he sees that as us receiving him. He sees that we understand and think highly of the humility of his nature as well as his other attributes. And he understands that the person is acknowledging that they belong to him. But he also gives a very strong warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck 
and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus describes an extreme punishment here. To be, he says it's be better for that person if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Better? Better than what? You see, as God the Son, who will be the judge at the great white throne, Jesus knows exactly the horrible punishment that will come upon such a person. And being drowned by a millstone would be much better than the punishment that comes from the great white throne. Again, our God, our Lord, takes great offense when a person not only rejects God's free offer of salvation, but then who also entices or even drags others away. Kind of like the birds in the parable of the sower. The seed is sown and they immediately come and snatch it away. So we should thank our Lord for his wonderful promise in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. Again, we look at what could happen, but then we look at what Jesus says. He's talking about people who would cause others to sin. But in John 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You and I need to take that as a wonderful promise. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. It's an incredible, wonderful promise. When he says, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand, that means that you yourself cannot snatch you out of Christ's hand. Once you belong to him, you belong to him. And though you may rebel, you may act differently, you may make noises, call names, so forth, you can never be taken away from Christ or the Father. I find that terrific. But back to Jesus speaking to his disciples about people who choose or who chose to sin and reject God and then drag others with them down the same path, Jesus says, verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. He said something very similar back in the, in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. There are two woes that Jesus mentions here. The first woe is for the world that is constantly in danger of the offenses of people, all of which are allowed but not caused by God. We are still in a fallen world, but for now, there are constant hurts, angers, damages, wars, disobedience, 
slaughters, murder, and many more sins, all of which offend our God. So the second woe proclaimed by Jesus is to that man or that person by whom the offense comes. And again, Jesus contrasts the consequences of their sin, that the hand or foot is the cause cut off, it's better to enter heaven, lame or maimed, than to enter the eternal lake of fire, physically whole. And similarly, if the eye causes one to sin, it's better to pluck it out and cast it from you, so as to enter eternal life than to have both eyes but be condemned to the lake of fire. Of course, there are serious problems for anyone to take these words of Jesus as literal command rather than as hyperbole, illustrating an attitude, a state of mind. The problem isn't just the obvious physical harm that a person might do to themselves, but more in the fact that external bodily mutilation doesn't go far enough in dealing with sin. Instead, we must be transformed on the inside first, as Paul describes in Romans 12, 2, where he says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, this is internal, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, a cynical person, as I was, taking these illustrations literally could say, well, if I cut off my right hand, I can still sin with my left. If my left eye is gouged out, my right eye can still sin. And if all such members are gone, I can still sin in my heart and mind. There's cynicism. But our Lord calls us to a much more radical transformation than any kind of bodily mutilation can accomplish. So while it is clear that Jesus isn't meaning these examples literally, in other words, don't read this and cut off your hand or foot or pluck out your eye, it's nonetheless very clear that he promises to deal with the people by whom offenses come. They will be proclaimed guilty before the Lord with no excuse. Remember again what the Holy Spirit says through Paul. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. That's quite a command. But rather give place to wrath. In other words, get out of the way because for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So basically he's saying, don't avenge yourselves. Just get out of God's way because he's going to take care of it. In other words, it's not for us to take vengeance. On the contrary, Jesus teaches that we're to let go of the anger that arises within us. Let go of the bitterness of being wronged. Let go of the... and, and, and make room for the wrath and the vengeance of God, which he promises. Verse 10, Jesus still speaking, says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. You need to look at that again. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. 
He says, do not despise one of these little ones. That's what Jesus said. His followers must be sure not to discount the children, the immature, the mentally deficient, but to treat them with care, love, and respect because we are to respect and emulate the humble. Also, their angels don't just watch over them, but they also see the face of the Father who is in heaven. This is one of the few places where we see mentioned the fact that there are guardian angels watching over God's people. We see that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 and other places. And then Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That verse 11, we see here Jesus' very short summary of the mission of his first advent, his first coming, to save that which was lost. Are you still there? Because all of a sudden my computer went black. Wow. I don't know what to do. I don't even know if there's a connection. What was that? If you could still hear me, and I know I had you on mute, so you can't let me know unless you send me a text on my phone. Um, I don't know if you're still there or not. So I'm going to restart my computer. And I hope, you know, if I cut you off, please rejoin. The Dickens? You know you're not with us, right? What's that? You know that you were not with us and we can't hear you. Okay, yeah, I was trying to talk if anybody was there. I just went black. It's really weird. Okay, looks like you guys are still there. Can you hear us? I can hear you now. I, my computer just went Wrong. black. It just went... I oh. can hear you. Totally yeah, black. You can hear us. Yes, Peter. Yeah, He's I can right hear... We can, oh. we can hear you now. Well, I can hear I you now. Know. Let me... Yeah, uh, still, sweetie. Uh, okay. I'm going to mute you also. Oh, you I'm, I'm going to finish the message okay. and okay. then we can talk. As long as he knows. Yeah. Wow, that was weird. I've got to find out where I was. Anyway, I'm going to go to Do Not Despise One of These Little Ones, Jesus said. His followers must be sure not to discount the children, the immature, the mentally deficient. You can't hear? I was going to trim my mustache, but I can't because... 
Okay. How about now? Can you hear there me you now? Are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see if this works. Can you still hear me? Okay. I'm so sorry. Anyway, we were talking about the guardian angels that watch over God's people. And then what Jesus said in verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And that really is Jesus' very short summary of the mission of his first coming, to save that which was lost. That's it. And he says it in different ways in other places. Uh, with Paul's testimony as well. He says in Luke 9, Luke 19, John 3, 1 Timothy, and elsewhere. That's it. That's his mission, to be the savior of people who are lost or unsaved. In this context, he's referring to these little ones, which doesn't just refer to children. We need to understand that. But actually to all people, as he illustrates with a well-known parable. All people who are his. There's this parable. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In Luke's version of this parable, he adds a bit more information, including specifically angels. Luke 15, and when he has found it, the sheep that he was looking for, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. You've probably seen paintings of Jesus with the lamb over his shoulders. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I find that awesome. I was telling you that when he says these little ones, it doesn't just mean little kids. It means all of his children, in some cases, all people. In a similar way, if you read in, in John's first letter, in 1 John, he uses the term little children very often. It's the same use. He's talking to all of his people, all of them, not just, not just kids. Back to the parable, quite simply, a true shepherd, as Jesus was and is, is concerned for all of his sheep. And when one is lost, he will leave the others, presumably with other shepherds, to go and search for the stray. You see, he doesn't just write it off as slaves, servants, or hired people might. But he goes wherever he must, way out of the way, often with great effort, to find that one sheep. And hear me. And that's what Jesus did for me and for you and for all the lost souls over the millennia whom he has gone after and received into his fold.
See, and when the stray is found, he rejoices, he parties. And as we've seen, he rejoices with angels. And I love what Jesus says earlier. These are angels who look in the face of God. We can't do that yet as sinners, but we'll be able to do that when we're in heaven. And so, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd who has come to seek and to save that which was lost, that's Luke's version of that, he sought us out, and by his death on the cross, he saved us. I find it incredible how Jesus took that simple, selfish question of his disciples and developed it into a wonderful sermon that reaches all the way 2,000 years to us. And Father, I do thank you. I thank you for Jesus' teaching. I thank you for Matthew's recording of it, Lord. And we looked at what Paul said and what Luke said and what Mark said as well and what John said, all of them inspired by your Spirit. Again, once again, Father, as we say so often, we are so blessed that we have your word, that you've provided it to us in a language that we can read and understand. And I thank you, Lord, that your love for people is so great that you will go to the ultimate lengths in order to bring us into your kingdom, into Christ's fold. Great lengths, including Jesus, our Lord, going to the cross and dying for us. We are so thankful. And we're thankful, Lord, for these, these words that, that you've protected in our Bible. For us to read. In Jesus' name. Amen.